Well, it's so great to see all of you, um, those who I can see and those who I can't. Uh, it's great to be able to be together, um, even if we can't be in the same place. Um, you've been in my prayers every single day, praying at Mass, um, as I celebrate Mass privately, <clears throat> unable to have a congregation. The Mass is still effective and um, is still the sacrifice uh, that redeems us, and that grace is flowing in many, many places. Um, and I am in communion and thinking of a lot the people who go without the sacraments, and especially during these these days of um, the Easter Triduum, Holy Thursday tomorrow, and then Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. To not be able to go to church, that would have been my dream when I was a little kid, but now that I understand what's going on in the Mass, uh, it's a it's a deep deprivation not to to be able to celebrate together in the body of Christ. So <clears throat> those are my prayers for you, and um, hopefully this encourages us to, to more deeply appreciate uh, the sacraments and the gift of communion being with one another as well. This talk um, is based on a, a book I read uh, about a year, year and a half ago, um, and it really kind of changed my way of thinking um, a, lot, a lot. I titled the talk, Secularism versus the sacramental worldview. I'm going to pull up the presentation here. Um, so you should be able to see me still, right? Even though you can... Maddie, can you nod if you can see me? Good. Um, nice. Uh, secularism versus the sacramental worldview. First of all, I wanted to... Before I even get into the, the book specifically, I wanted to show you what um, ministry and mission looks like in the age of COVID-19. Here, this is me just moments ago. <laughs> Uh, getting ready to give this talk. Um, so this book, For the Life of the World, Alexander Schmemann, he's actually an Eastern Orthodox uh, priest. And he wrote this book in the 1970s um, as a way to form missionaries, uh, specifically in um, the East. So Russian Orthodox priests who are going to go uh, be missionaries in non-Christian countries. Um, and the whole point of the book is basically like, how do we Christians actually see the world? Um, because people from different cultures, different religions, different backgrounds have a worldview. They have certain assumptions about the way the world works and, and what it means, um, what the purpose of human life is. And when you come in to evangelize, to, to share the gospel with, with people who have never heard of Jesus, never heard of Christianity, never even heard of of monotheism, um, how do you communicate or what, what are the core kind of elements of our worldview? And um, to put it simply, we have a sacramental worldview. In other words, that the world is itself a sign of God, a sign of God's love, a sign of God's presence. All of reality is sacramental. Even human beings are sacramental. We're made as the Bible says, in the image of God. So we are sacraments of God. We are a visible manifestation of who God is and what he's like. Um, we are not God himself. The world is not God. We are not pantheists who believe uh, in worship of, of created things like the sun or the moon or trees or whatever. We believe God is transcendent to his creation, and yet he's totally present in it. Um, so... I want to start with a, a quick story. When I was in seminary, I got an ant farm just for the fun of it. I, it was my nephew's birthday, actually, and he got an ant farm. And I was at the birthday party, and I was kind of jealous of him. He was maybe like eight years old. And I thought, I always wanted an ant farm when I was a kid. My neighbor kid had one, uh, and I liked looking at it, but <clears throat> I was never allowed to get one myself. And then here I was in seminary, a grown person, and I could do what I want. So I bought one. And um, they don't come with ants. I was surprised to find that out. Like you just order it on Amazon and all that comes is that like green square and the, the sand and everything. So you actually have to buy ants from another website and they send you these ants in tubes in the mail. And they're called harvester ants. They're kind of big red ants that you can see their pinchers on their, on their face. Um, and they're super industrious. They, they, they just work. And the only ones you're allowed to get are the drones, the worker ants, um, because it's illegal to buy a queen ant through the mail. I also found that out in, in this quest. Um, 
So I get the ants in the ant farm. I put them in the ant farm and they immediately start to dig. And it's fascinating. They make all these tunnels and they make hills and they're just work, 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 work. There's about 20 ants in there. And I put like a little piece of apple um, and they would come for breaks every once in a while, suck a little bit of sugar water out of the apple and then go immediately back to digging. And the thing that struck me about it was that people would come by my room in the seminary and they, everybody was interested in the ant farm. Like, hey, I heard you have an ant farm. Let's, let's see it. And they would look at it for a couple minutes and then invariably they would say something like, what's the point of this? And I would say, there's no point. It's just to look at the ants dig. And they're like, so do they, they, just, they just keep digging and then do they die? And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then you... you throw them away and get more if you want. Um, but they don't live forever and they're not digging anywhere. There's, there's no like purpose to what they're doing. They just, by instinct, it's in their DNA to just dig. So if you start a little hole for them, they're just going to dig and they'll make tunnels and, but they have no queen. They have no, um, like progeny. They're not working towards any goal. They simply just work. And, um, then people would say that's depressing. And it isn't depressing in the sense that, like, the ants aren't depressed. The ants don't think like this. But we human beings, like this guy in this photo, can't help but look at the ant farm and be like, if my life were just digging to nowhere, and I was in this little closed-in box with no holes in it for me to get out into any wider, bigger world outside this world, if I was just digging to nowhere and the only consolation I had was a little bit of sugar water for me to suck out, to get some pleasure, some sweetness during the drudgery of my life, and then I just died and get thrown away, that would be too much to bear. I couldn't handle that. If that's all my life was, what's the point of living? And that, to me, gets to a very important um, question of human life, uh, like, what are we here for? Why do we have that sense when nothing else in nature thinks like that? Nothing else in nature asks that question. But we cannot help but ask it. And we also can't help but feel that this world is not or cannot simply be closed in on itself. There has to be something beyond and behind this world that makes this world worth loving and makes this life worth living. So this was a, a bus ad campaign that was put out by some kind of like humanist, atheist uh, organization in the UK, um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It says on the bus there, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Um, I don't know what the point of this ad campaign was, it was very controversial at the time, <clears throat> but it, to me, kind of like communicates one of the presumptions of our age and our culture, which is that God um, is a kind of oppressive force in our life. He, he restricts our freedom. He tells us what to do. Um, he makes us worry. Because, am I not doing what I'm supposed to do? Am I not living the way I'm supposed to live? Do I need to feel guilty about that? Um, but I read this bus ad and I think of oh, the ant farm. There's probably no God. There's probably no meaning. This is just a world closed in on itself. You're just going to die. Just stop worrying and enjoy it. Suck enough sweetness out of that apple and, and um, try not to think about the fact that your life has no meaning. Um, that's not a liberating message to me. Um, but I think in a secular world, and I'll get to the definition of what that means, um, this is what we are up against is, is a... Uh, kind of worldview that doesn't see the necessity of any sort of transcendent meaning in life and even sees that potential of transcendent meaning as some kind of obnoxious uh, distraction, like just stop thinking about it. Um, this is a quote from, from the book that I'll just read. Uh, I need to move your little camera pieces here. Nietzsche, who's a, who is a philosopher, um, modern philosopher who denied the existence of, of God, he said, Nietzsche had already warned us that the death of God is perfectly consistent with a burgeoning religiosity. 
He did not think even for a moment that religion was finished. What he questioned was its ability to move people and elevate their minds. Religion has become a product to be consumed, a form of entertainment among others, a source of comfort for the weak, or an emotional service station destined to fulfill certain irrational needs that it satisfies better than anything else. What he's saying there is that one of our responses to the challenge of secularism, the challenge of atheism, is to say, well, sure, it's not for everybody, right? Um, But I find a lot of comfort in believing in God. I find a lot of uh, consolation in thinking, like, we we can't agree on the meaning. Obviously, it's too big. It's too transcendent for any one person to know the answer, any one religion to claim, you know, objective truth. But I'm spiritual, you know, I, I believe that life has some transcendent meaning. I can't define what it is, but um, I feel it in here. It comes from here, and that's where um, I find this meaning. I'm not just going to suck sugar water from the apple. I'm not just going to throw myself into pleasures of this world. I, like, I need some kind of thing beyond this world, but um, in a way, it's just like any other consumer good. Religion, you can take it or leave it. Um, it doesn't force us to make any sort of decision about what is the real truth? What is this objective world outside the ant farm? Like, can somebody come in from that world and tell us what it's like out there? Or are we just still stuck in the ant farm? And the ants are all just kind of like working, working, working. And some of them are off on on the side, like contemplating, like, what do I think the world is like outside the ant farm? What do you think the world? Well, nobody really knows, right? But it's nice to think about it, isn't it? Um, so I think it's important to know there's, there's a kind of religiosity. It's not enough to just believe in God or say like, yeah, this is uh, something that's important to me um, because that doesn't really challenge the secular worldview. Um, it doesn't really pierce through the closed-in world. Um, secularism is very comfortable with people in their little boxes, in their little churches, doing their religious rituals, as long as it doesn't affect the real world, which is the world without God the ant farm, the world of industry, the world of practical, imminent ends. Okay, so a question beneath all of these questions is, what does it mean to be human? Um, these are two famous philosophers, Plato and Aristotle from, the, from ancient Greece, who had answers to these, this question. Um, but their, their basic philosophy, they differ in important ways, but what they believed was that there is the kind of universal ideal form and then there's the particular manifestation of that form so say like a tree the the only way i know what a tree is is by looking at trees but all trees are pretty different you know you got oak trees you have cherry trees you have pine trees um but somehow in my mind i have access to the reality of treeness you know i know what the essence of tree is. Maybe I can't even describe it exactly, but I, when I see a tree, I see, even if that's different than any other tree I've ever seen, I know that that's a tree. Same thing with dogs. Dogs is a good example because um, dogs can be so different, like a Chihuahua versus a Great Dane or a St. Bernard versus a, a Greyhound. Like there's such different animals. Um, say, well, they all have four legs and ears and a nose, but so does a tiger and so does a... Uh, a monkey or whatever. Do monkeys have arms? Would those technically be legs? Um, But in any case, like, there's still, there's a capacity in in our minds to say, like, no, that dogness, like that dogness in the Chihuahua maps to the dogness in the Greyhound somehow, some way. And importantly, they said, what's really real is the form, the ideal, the universal And what's a shadow, what's an image of that reality is the particular dog or tree or human being. Um, But what's important is that there are natures, that that there's such a thing as animal nature or vegetable nature or inorganic nature, like the the things have a nature. And there is, importantly, a human nature. And that nature is distinct from other natures. It's not, we're not just simply animals that happen to be smarter than the other animals. Um, There's something distinct in us that makes us human. And two of those things, importantly, are intellect and freedom, free will. Um, We can know the truth about things. We're the only thing in the universe that contemplates the idea of what the universe is. 
Um, and yet we're in the universe, we're part of nature, but we have access to nature itself. Um, and we have this free will. We're not just conditioned by instinct. We can choose, um, we see in our intellect, like what's the good that I am obliged to do by my conscience? What's the evil that I'm obliged to avoid? And I can choose it. I can also choose to avoid the good and do the evil. I can uh, defy my human nature and become less than human. But nevertheless, I'm still a human being. I still have this human nature. This is a, a painting of, um, it's called The Bathers by Bouguereau. Uh, he was a French painter, I think in the 18th or early 19th century. He, he um, also painted several famous religious paintings, one of the Pieta, which is beautiful. But this is in the Art Institute in Chicago. And one day I was at, at the Art Institute and I was struck by this image um, because it's just two human figures, two female nude figures in an ocean setting. They're on like a beach bathing. And around them, the world looks so barren. Um, and as I looked at this, I thought, what would it be like if you had never seen another person like you? Um, like you were, as far as you knew, the only human being in all of the world. You'd seen animals, you'd seen trees, you'd seen rocks and mountains and oceans and stuff. But nothing like you, nothing you could talk to, nothing that you could be friends with. Um, and then you saw these two figures in this desolate world. It would be so amazing. Like we're, we're conditioned by sin, so we see two naked ladies and are like, oh, giggling, like when you went to the Art Institute when you were 12. Um, but what this work of art and what all art does is kind of show us what's been in front of us all this time and show us it in a transfigured way. And what I see in this painting is two people who are extremely vulnerable, okay? Unlike all the animals that you might have seen, whether it's a gorilla or a squirrel or whatever, big, small, they, all the animals are like equipped for their environment, right? They either have fur or scales or something to defend them from the elements. But human beings, they're born naked. They have nothing to defend themselves. G.K. Chesterton said, human beings are the only animals that can't sleep in their own skin, right? We need clothes in order to like get through winter and stuff like that. Um, but we're also the only animal in nature that knows what nature is. We're the, we're the only animal that speaks with meaning. Like we, you know, birds sing and, and parrots can mimic talking and stuff like that. But we're the only animal that signifies. We're the only animal that says things that mean something and then can receive those signals, those meanings and contemplate them and meditate on them. Um, so what Chesterton says, we're, we're this freak. We're the freak of nature. We're, in, we're part of nature. We're in it. We're like the animals in so many ways. We have these bodily functions. We have these bodily limitations. And yet we have access to um, a world that nothing else in nature can access. Um, what we call in Catholicism, Kapax Day. We're capable of receiving God. We're capable of, of relating to the totality of being. Um, and so I was just struck by this, this painting as kind of like, whoa, to be human is so weird, <laughs> you know, it's so weird. And we just kind of take it for granted, um, that yeah, this is, this is the case. But what Chesterton also said, this is all from the book Everlasting Man, which is a great read. Um, he's like, you know, if you, if you try to explain away God and the uniqueness of the human person as we're just a sophisticated animal by by just like extending the time frame of evolution, saying like just through these gradual changes and mutations, we were able to, you know, think critically or, or have the, what we call consciousness, but it's just an advanced form of animal consciousness or whatever. Um, he says it's not, it, it doesn't really explain what we have right in front of us. Like you can imagine that and say like, ah, oh, that's logical. And we Catholics, we can believe in evolution. We can believe the human person developed naturally but nevertheless, like the human being as he and she present themselves today is, is totally unique. And it's not like monkeys painted bad paintings of things. And then human beings came along and painted better paintings. It's that there was nobody painting 
And then all of a sudden, an animal came into existence that painted and wrote poetry and fell in love and did all of these things that nothing else in nature does. And that, Chesterton says, is something science cannot explain, something an atheistic, secular worldview can't account for. Okay, so it's really important to understand who we are as human beings in order to be able to see the world sacramentally. What Joseph Pieper says is that we are corporeal spirits. We are angels that have bodies. That's, what, that's why we are this freak, because we stand between two worlds, between heaven and earth, between God and nature. And what it means to be a spirit is not simply disembodied, like an angel or God is spirit, means they, they're not limited by time and space, right? They're not physical. They don't, they, like you can see on this, this image of me in the camera that I have limits. Like this is, that part is not me and this is me. That's how you can tell where I am and when I am. An angel is not like that. There's no borders, right? That's why they're invisible. Um, but to be a spirit is not simply just to not have a body because we are spiritual but have bodies. Spirit, he says, is not only defined as incorporeal, but as the power and capacity to relate itself to the totality of being. So this is what I'm talking about, that what we experience as being spiritual is this. And maybe you've had these moments where it's like, whoa, dude, have you ever thought about that? Um, where you're like, you see past reality to like the totality of things. And maybe it's in a beautiful nature setting. Maybe it's in a beautiful cathedral. Maybe it's just like sitting in your room by yourself in quarantine uh, while you're not distracted by Netflix or music or whatever, and you're just kind of like contemplating the meaning of life, and you have this epiphany, this kind of penetrating insight of like, what, is, what does this all mean? Okay, so what it means to be secular is to basically deny that, basically deny that there's anything unique about being human, um, that everything is able to be accounted for in that closed-in ant farm world. The only things that are really important or meaningful or worth talking about are things that serve those practical, physical, economic ends. Um, and people who waste their time thinking about like the wonders of the universe or, or if there's a God and whether that matters are asking questions that don't matter. So Pieper says this um, about secularism, what it means to be secular. Above all, in the first place, that a man accepts his environment defined as it is by the immediate needs of life so completely and finally the things happening cannot any longer become transparent. The great, wide, not to say deep world, which is at first sight invisible, the world of essences and universals, is not even suspected. Nothing wonderful ever happens in this world, and wonder itself is unknown or lost. The narrow, insensitive mind that has become narrow through being insensitive takes everything for granted. And what in truth is to be taken for granted? Just think about that for a second. It strikes me, I, I, I don't mean this as a judgment at all, but it strikes me that in the, the times that I've gone to places, um, like I spent a lot of time in El Salvador when I was in the seminary learning Spanish, places that are, are struck with a lot of poverty and experiences of contingency and dependence and interdependence, where there's not a lot of autonomy and like, I can take care of myself and I can do everything, I have everything I need. I don't need you, I don't need God. Places where it's impossible to say things like that because you just are constantly in need um, tend to be people who don't take things for granted and tend to be people who see God's hand in everything. It's the cultures and the places that are very content with themselves <laughs> that take a lot of things for granted that just kind of, and especially in this time when like now all these things that we did take for granted we, we don't have access to. Many of us are still doing fine. Many are not, but um, to simply wonder at the world, to see the gift that existence itself is, that I'm not owed the gift of life. Um, it's hard to appreciate that when, when you're full, when you don't need anything, you don't need God, or you don't think you do. Um, but it's so poisonous to the human spirit. It, it just kills that urge, that desire for something more. And it results in a deep boredom, uh, a deep anxiety, a deep restlessness, because the human spirit longs to relate to the totality of being that is God. That's where, how we're wired. That's what we believe, is that 
we are this freak. We just find ourselves in nature, in the world, and we're like, what are we doing here? What are we here for? What we're here for is to offer it all back to God, to glorify him, to be priests, like to, to offer the world on the altar, to consecrate it back to God. Um, we're here to be the one creature that can actually receive in its fullness um, God's love. And the world is an expression of that love. Um, but we are just like content with the little things, the, the trivial matters, the practical imminent ends, the visible world, and we fail, we're blind to the invisible world. And Schwemann says this, here is the real cause of secularism, which is ultimately nothing else but the affirmation of the world's autonomy, of its self-sufficiency in terms of reason, knowledge, and action. The world closed in on itself. That this is the only world that matters. This is the only world we need. It's a lie. <laughs> it kills the human spirit, but it's the, the definition of secularism. Um, just as an aside, there's a, there's a form of secularism, as I said, that's content for, for religious people to be doing their religion and everything like that. But that says you can be religious in private, right? Because publicly, all we can really agree on, all we can really talk about is secular matters. You, you can be religious. There's nothing wrong with religion, but you just can't be publicly religious. Um, that too is inimical to the Christian worldview. No, like the most important part of me the purpose of human life can't be included in any discussion in government or economics or academia. That makes no sense, right? But we just kind of take it for granted in, in, in this world. And there are reasons for that and history behind that. But um, it's a challenge constantly to, to our worldview and our, our lives and our choices as Christians. Okay, so this next really important idea from Schmemann about, um, about the Christian worldview and seeing the world sacramentally is the, the word epiphany. What is epiphany? He says, epiphany is the primordial in- intuition that everything in this world and the world itself not only have elsewhere the cause and principle of their existence, but are themselves the manifestation and presence of that elsewhere. And that this indeed is the life of their life. So that disconnected from that epiphany, all is only darkness, absurdity, and death. There's a lot packed in here, but I'll just say this. What epiphany means is that for me to get outside the ant farm, to, for me to get out into that other world, there's no me breaking out of this world. I can't escape it. I'm limited by time and space. I am a corporeal spirit. I am limited to my body. I can only see with my eyes. I can only hear with my ears. I have this spiritual soul, right, that, that resonates at a frequency that, that seems to be prompted by something beyond and behind this world, like my conscience, my, my, um, my heart, uh, which is moved by things. Um, but nevertheless, like, for me to get any insight about the other world, heaven, God, that world has to come to me. That world has to come from itself into my world. God has to reveal himself. I don't grab at God and figure things out. That is how we do science, right? The physical world, you can do that. You can examine it. You can investigate it. You can dissect it. But God does not admit of dissection. He he can't be examined that way. He simply has to speak. He has to reveal himself. And the way he reveals himself is in and through this world, through physical, visible, audible means, right? If he wants to speak, if he wants to write a book, he inspires human authors to write that book in human language. Um, If he wants to speak to us, he speaks through mediated causes, like angels who become visible somehow and audible, or through prophets more often, through human voices that God speaks through. Um, And if he wants to come give us a hug, if he wants to come wash our feet, he comes in a human body. Right? That's the way God reveals himself is through signs and symbols and sacraments. Okay? That's a very key idea of epiphany. If we're not open to epiphany, if we think epiphany is impossible, if we write off miracles, for instance, as, as let's just say that that can't happen because the world is closed in on itself. It's just a, a set of determined scientific, physical, measurable causes. And anything outside of that is not real or it's totally subjective then we've cut ourselves off from epiphany. We're, we're back in the secular world. 
um, which is what he calls darkness, absurdity, and death. We all know that. If you, if you live in the secular world long enough, you're like, what is this oppressive darkness that's over me? Right? It's the thing killing your soul. But when you're open to epiphany, when you're open to receiving a revelation of God, then you're open to life and to who you are as a human being. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this really quick, but the idea of sign and symbol is so important also for understanding the sacraments. What, what we mean by a sign is something that points to something else. Okay, so the McDonald's arches points to cheeseburgers, to um, shakes and fries and all the rest of it. They themselves, you can't, you can't eat the sign, but the sign points to something you can eat. A symbol, on the other hand, doesn't just point to something else, but it carries within it that something else, that thing that it signifies, that thing that it's a sign of. So a quarter, for instance, a, a piece of money signifies value. A quarter signifies 25 cents. Um, but also, if I give you that quarter, that is 25 cents. That itself is the thing that it signifies. And words, too, can be uh, symbols. It can be, words can be signs or symbols. A word that's a sign is like all the words that I'm saying right now. They're signs of something else. The, the sounds that are coming out of my mouth are being received into your ears. Uh, and then they're going in there and they're like, oh, yeah, what's he saying? And, and it, there's signs of, of ideas and principles and concepts. But there are other words that are symbolic, meaning that they carry weight. They, they affect what they symbolize or what they signify. Words like when a police officer says, you're under arrest. Those words are symbolic because now you actually are under arrest because he's deputized to, to arrest you. Or if an umpire says, you're out in a baseball game, that means you're actually out. Okay. So a sacrament is a kind of symbol. This is often confusing to people. Like uh, uh, that Pew Research uh, survey that was done, it was released earlier this year that said like 72% of Catholics believe that the Eucharist is not actually Jesus, that it's, quote, just a symbol. Um, well, that's tragic if, the, if they're saying that what's, what being a symbol means is that it's not actually the presence of Jesus. Um, but the, the question itself is a little confusing or confused because it both is Jesus, but it's also a symbol of Jesus, right? It's, it's a sign, a visible sign, a sacramental sign that actually contains what it signifies. That's what a sacrament is, um, so like the Eucharist makes Jesus visible, right? I'm looking at that picture of a host. This is, this is a, a sign of a sacrament. This, this is just an image of the reality of being in the presence of the Eucharist. But even if I'm in the real presence of the Eucharist, am I really seeing Jesus? Well, yes, yes, I'm seeing Jesus. The Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But like, he's still kind of invisible, isn't he? Like he's visible in an invisible way. And, that, and that's what the sacraments hold in tension, is this mystery that Jesus, God, the Son of God, is abidingly present in his church. And yet, we can't grasp at him. Like, we can't, like, grab him and say, Jesus, this is what I need, okay? Uh, end the epidemic. Let us go back to church, right? Like, he's not, he's not present that way, that we have any control over him. He's, he's present sacramentally. Like, he's here, Yes but in a way that sort of still requires faith in order for me to see. Um, okay, so I need to be able to see sacramentally. I need to accept in some faith these words that are symbolic, that that priest is actually deputized, that when he says those words, it's not him saying the words, it's God, and what God says happens, and he said, this is my body, which will be given up for you. You see how that requires a way of seeing the world, that if you don't accept that, like, that's just a piece of bread. Right? It's not, it doesn't compel me to do what Jesus tells me to do, right? Okay, so this is the last major concept I'll go through, but what we believe as Catholics, what the sacramental worldview basically is, is an inversion of the secular worldview. Okay, this is just a brief story, but a, a priest once told me he did a 30-day silent retreat, um, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius on a sabbatical. And so he took, he took a month off from his parish, did this, a spirit, these spiritual exercises, and it totally changed his life. Like, it was the first time he, like, really deeply uh, experienced God's... I mean, he was a priest, so obviously he, he knew God, he had faith in God, but it was like this transforming 
experience of who God really is and how intimately present he is to him in every moment. And he had to go be quiet for 30 days in order to experience that. Um, and he got back to the parish and he was at a meeting, like a finance council meeting with some of his parish finance council. And one of the ladies on the council said, oh, Father, what did you do for your sabbatical? He said, oh, I did a 30-day silent retreat, the spiritual exercise in St. Ignatius. And she goes, <laughs> welcome back to the real world. And he just goes, mm, is it? Is the finance council the real world? And that world that I was in was like fantasy spirit world. Because what he'd experienced was the exact opposite. That this is reality. <laughs> like God is so present. He's present in everything. He's present in the Eucharist. He's present when I'm praying. He's present when I'm not praying. <laughs> he's present everywhere. And he's intensely interested in me and loves me and is guiding me and like has a purpose for my life. But no, what really matters and what's really real is the budget, right? No, of course the budget matters. We're not saying that the things in the world, these practical ends are unimportant. It's just that they are less real. They're less real. And they're only real in the sense that they contribute or, or reflect some higher reality. That God exists way more than we exist in the sense that he is existence itself. Like he's the only necessary being. And I simply exist because he chooses for me to exist, because he loves me. I don't have to exist. Unlike God, he has to exist. I am just a reflection of him. I'm an important reflection. I'm a human being. I'm made in his divine image. But he's what's really real. Okay, so a way of saying the sacramental worldview is to say symbolic realism or realistic symbolism. In other words, that, that what's really real are these symbol things that we do, like the Mass, right? So like Thomas Merton went and became a monk at Gethsemane in Kentucky, and he got to this monastery where it's just like 40, 50 dudes who've taken vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, and just basically pray five times a day, have Mass every day, work, you know, out in the fields. And he said, "This this is actually the epicenter of the United States, and everything revolves around this but nobody knows it, right? This, but this is what's really real. What these guys are doing, they are receiving God. And if they weren't, then nothing else in this world would matter. Because it, no matter what we do, if we have the biggest buildings in the world, we have the best economy in the world, we have uh, the coolest art and music and, and whatnot, but if nobody's receiving God, nobody knows who he is, nobody cares, then who cares? It's all going to just disappear. man I got a lot here and we're already at 45 minutes I'll say this when I when I bless holy water okay so when I I consecrate holy water like for baptism for instance or for the water to bless yourself when you go into mass there's a way of thinking that says okay I've taken something profane I've taken something kind of dumb and morally neutral like water and I've made it sacred. And now this water can't be just poured down the drain. It has to be either poured into some flower bed or something or um, that it has to be taken more seriously. It's only to be used for sacred purposes um, and it has to be treated sacred. But water before, it was kind of meaningless and you could do whatever you wanted with it. Um, and so the same goes for all sorts of, of things, you know, like the consecrated bread becomes the body of Christ. Obviously we don't treat that like ordinary bread. Um, fair enough. But what, what we believe as Christians is that the whole world, um, this is one of the quotes from the last slide. The whole world is the natural sacrament of God, meaning that nothing in this world is actually morally, spiritually, religiously neutral. Water itself is sacred, right? Everything is sacred. Um, Or at least it's meant to be consecrated. It's meant to be offered back to God. Um, There's a question somebody asked once in seminary. He said, if you go up to the beach and you just bless the whole ocean, does the whole ocean become holy water? Right? (laughs) It's kind of a silly question. Um, But it, it begs the question like, well, what does it mean to make something holy? What does it mean to consecrate something? Uh, yes, it's to set it apart for like a, a ritual like baptism. But what Shemaman says is that it, 
it restores it to its true meaning. What we believe as Christians is that water means something. God created it for a purpose. And it doesn't just mean like washing my body or watering my plants so that I can have food to eat, crops and whatnot. It has those practical ends, but the symbolic meaning of it, like spiritual cleansing or spiritual refreshment, that that water is meant to symbolize and signify to me a way that God is taking care of me. That everything in the world somehow reflects God. And if we don't have a sacramental way of thinking, then we can be looking at the most beautiful thing in nature and just be like, oh, cool, that'd be a good phone background or whatever. And we, don't, like, we don't see it as God literally like writing love letters to us and being like, this is all because I love you and because I have a, a specific way that I want to love you and make you alive, right? So every fruit, uh, he, he said that Adam and Eve, you can eat of any of the fruits of the garden. And so before the sin, every food was a sacrament of communion with God. It was God feeding them with himself, with his own essence. Like he, his, all of creation is flowing from him. And Adam and Eve were like, this part of creation I can eat. Oh, wow. But it's like I'm eating God, right? It's like he's just like providing everything for me, my body, my, my heart, my soul. And after sin, there's a division. Like now everything is like, I fail to see the significance. I fail to see how God is present in this world. And so I just make my own little closed in world. And then God's like, no, but I still want to be part of your world. And so we'd be like, okay, this part, this is the sacred part. That's the temple. That's the part where we talk to you and where that stuff is just for you. And then this is all our stuff. Okay, but God's like, all right, yeah, but... And then he comes... And he does what he does during Holy Week and the veil of the temple is torn and like, boom, the tomb is opened up and like the whole world starts to like the kingdom of God just starts burgeoning and his body starts growing in the baptism of the faithful until the whole world at the parousia, at the end times, the whole world again is a sacrament of God. The way St. Paul says is to instaurare omnia in Christ, to restore all things in Christ, to make the world again capable of, of carrying God's presence or, or for us to at least see it again. Um, and it has to happen through us. It has to happen through human beings because that was our vocation in the first place was to offer back God's creation to him as an act of love. He loves us. We return that love and are brought into the love who is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's what we do. That's what God was doing in, in uh, the Annunciation and becoming part of his creation in dying on the cross and receiving, like totally offering the human, his human life back to God the Father to show us what it means to be human. And then what we do in the Mass and what we do in the sacraments is to participate, make that sacrifice our own, and so be restored to be humanized and also therefore to be divinized, to become Christified so that we can be like Christ in all things, truly human and participating in his divine life. Okay, so... This is, I promise, the last thing, but um, in the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I make all things new. He doesn't say, I make new things. And this is, this is another really important aspect of the sacramental worldview, the Catholic worldview, is that the way to heaven is not to just erase earth, okay? not to just deny our humanity and so like participate in divinity. He's come to make all things new, to restore all things in Christ, to to take this world and remake it, to, to, re, to be reborn. But the way that happens, sorry guys, is for you to die, for the whole world to pass away so that it can be transfigured, so it can be resurrected and glorified. And so our experience of this mystery, like you, the, the deepest mystic, the person most enthralled in the, the divine comforts of like, yeah, I am totally accessing this sacramental world, the, the world behind and behind this world that gives this world meaning and makes white life worth living. Yet that person suffers, right? Because we're in a world that's not, that's in labor pains, that's, that's dying in order be, to be reborn. Um, and so what it looks like to be Christian is to live in the already but not yet, to live in this tension where what we're doing, the most important thing we do during the day is go to mass, is to pray, is to, to live our life consecrated to God, um, to do these symbolic, liturgical, sacramental things 
to remind us of who we are and what we're here for. But then we go out and live that. Like the world becomes consecrated through us and we do things like Mother Teresa. We live like the saints who suffer and are in desolation and despair often. Um, but they, they accept it and they, they, they willingly suffer with and in Christ because they know that this, is, this life is giving way to another life. Um, the life of, of heaven. So one of the coolest applications of this, I think, is in um, C.S. Lewis's Weight of Glory. There's a famous quote, Focus loves it. Um, Besides the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the most sacred object available to your senses. Okay, so the reason you can say that is because um, the, the human person is made in the image of God. So in some sense, in a sacramental sense, to see another person is to see God, right? It's not that you are God, you're all-powerful, you're, you're all-loving and perfect like God, but that um, you're a reflection of him. And the Eucharist, which is a sacrament of Jesus, who is a sacrament of God, in the sense of like a physical, visible presence of God, um, more perfectly because he's the divine person, not just a human person, um, but I need to be able to see God in the Eucharist, in the Blessed Sacrament, in order to see God in my neighbor. Okay, so the practical application is that Mother Teresa spent an hour in adoration every day um, and then went out and served the poor. What she was not doing was starting a, a, a social organization to try to ameliorate poverty in the world. What she was doing was loving God, what she called doing something beautiful for God out of a love, out of, out of a vision of another world, right? That she was already living in a kingdom that was coming, right? And so that, that's what made her a saint and not just a philanthropist. Um, there's actually an interesting story in the Shmeman book where I'm getting a lot of what I talked about, where he said there, there was a missionary he knew who went to a place um, where they had no concept of, of like this kind of way of seeing the world, that God is both transcendent to the world, but also imminently present in everything. And to explain something like Jesus, you know, God in human form, or to explain something like resurrection, that Jesus is still alive, even though he died, was so outside of their like, what are you talking about? Much less like, oh, and then also Jesus is this bread, right? (laughs) Um, Like, there's so much that goes into seeing the world that way to, in order to be able to like, believe what we believe. And what he said was that the only way for me to show them that Jesus is alive is to just show them by being Jesus, right? And that's, that's to me, uh, and, and then it worked. Like he just lived as a saint. He, he cared for everyone regardless of who they were or their state in society. Um, he accepted very little for himself but was generous to others and but it wasn't, again, like him just trying to be a really nice person. It was him making God present to a world sacramentally. Like he is, yeah, he's a priest. He's a Christian. He is the presence of Christ in the world. And for these people, he was the only way they were going to see him in a way that was compelling. And that's, to me, what's, what's liberating and important about this way of seeing the world is that Christianity is not just a set of propositions like that God exists that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Eucharist is Jesus, and my job to evangelize you is to get you to believe those propositions. It's a way of seeing and it's a way of being. And um, because of that, to be truly Christian is to be truly human. And so if, if I'm being Christian in the authentic sense, I'm not just like believing what I'm supposed to believe and going to Mass on Sunday, but it has no actual effect on my life and I'm not being changed, I'm not becoming a sacrament myself, um, then it's, it's pointless. But if I, if I am becoming Christian, if I am becoming more and more conformed to Christ every day, then people will see it and they'll be compelled by it. Just the way that the people were compelled by Jesus in his time. And they were like, who is this person? I'm going to drop my nets and follow him. Or when his apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they started speaking in his name, they added 5,000 to their number that day or, or whatever, you know. Um, that's, that's how you do it. It's not through explaining it really well. Primarily, you do have to explain it when people ask you, like, what do you believe as a Christian? But if you're not laying the foundation by being 
the most human person in the room because you believe in Christ, um, then no explanation will do. Yeah, it's just occurring to me now, like I'm giving this whole talk on sacraments and none of us, you know, except a few priests can, can even go to the Eucharist right now. Um, but in a way, that's sort of the point of the sacramental world. Um, that quote from Thomas Aquinas I had on the screen, omnes uh, creaturis signa sunt, something like that. It's like all, all creatures are signs, are sacred signs, are signs of God's love. And I was thinking that today, it was a beautiful day outside, and um, I was thinking about the fact that I've been staring at screens a lot lately. Like, this is great seeing you guys, but I've also been just like staring at my phone, reading news about coronavirus. And it's like the only thing in my world right now, it feels like is coronavirus, you know? But then I look outside and like the trees are starting to bud and spring is coming and the, and the sun is shining. And like the world is still, it, coronavirus is not the only thing in the world, right? But that's, that, that's where the worldview thing comes in, that our point of view, our, our way of seeing really affects our way of being because a wise priest once told me evil is a vortex and that it tries to like suck your attention and suck your, your substance into it so that you're distracted from the good. Um, so I think in this time of quarantine, there's, there's so many ways that God is like giving me opportunities to draw into deeper communion with him. Um, even if I can't be with him or you can't be with him uh, physically, sacramentally in going to mass, uh, or even being with each other, you know, we can be here virtually, but we can't encourage each other the same way or refresh each other, like in the same way that we would if we were we were together at Newman right now doing this talk, we'd all hang out, play ping pong after and like these normal human consolations. But how much good am I missing? You know, how many ways that God is trying to reveal himself through ordinary things that are, I'm just ignoring because I'm caught in the vortex? Well, maybe we can finish with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son, Christ Jesus, for giving us your Holy Spirit to enlighten our intellect, strengthen our wills, to understand who you are, who you've made us to be. Bless us in this time of Holy Week with light and strength. Give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Give us peace, understanding, kindness and gentleness, patience with our families and patience in our relationships. Come to us in a new way this this Easter, Lord. Just show us that you are alive, that you are real, that you're the only thing that really is real, that makes this world real, that we exist because of your love, we exist to return your love. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.